So I didn't sleep very well last night because somebody's car alarm went on off on the street outside, woke me up, filled me with adrenaline, and I couldn't get back to sleep. And then just as I was getting back to sleep, I realized that today in Cincinnati was the first day of school. And sure enough, the teachers across the street, because I live right across the street from elementary school, got there early and they lined up outside. And as the kids showed up for school, they clapped them in, which meant that like they treated the kids like they were coming back from having won the championship. And as they were walking into the school building, they were going like, yeah, all right, you're here. Way to go. Way to go, Joey. All right. Yeah. And they just, they treated them like they were superstars showing up at school. They do it every year. And uh, my wife and I have a tendency to just go out and stand on the steps and, and cheer along. It's just, it's just too cool. And I just think, I wonder how, how different the world would be if occasionally you showed up like, I don't know, at the dentist or, you know, at your job. Or are you walking into your house and all your neighbors came out and they were like, yeah, all right. All right, Millie, good job. Glad to see you. You know, there was just something so cool about a group of people saying, let's make these other people feel good about what they're doing today. So I didn't sleep well, but I woke up happy. And, uh, and that's kind of a mixed, a mixed night. And you know, I, I do this sometimes when I'm in therapy, like we'll be small talking at the beginning and I'll be trying to figure out like, how am I going to make my transition into the thing we're really supposed to be talking about? And sometimes the transitions for are artful and sometimes they're very obvious. Like you just need to, you're just, okay, you're moving us along here. So the transition here is I'm about to share with you a conversation that I really enjoyed. I'm going to talk with Philip Yancey and that meme for some of you, won't mean anything because you didn't grow up in Christendom in my era. But if you grew up in Christendom in my era, Philip Yancey was a big deal. He was kind of, everybody would talk about like, maybe he's the next C.S. Lewis. Like he was the smart guy and the thoughtful guy who pushed the edges and, and, and was around, around the way. And I, you know, I would bump into him at a speaking engagement here or there. And I, I got to know him a little bit. I really liked him. And sometimes we would exchange letters. A, a couple of times when I got sort of in trouble, like I was being too heretical, they didn't know where I was going. I didn't know where I was going. But uh, I, I remember calling him once and saying, Phil, I'm in trouble. I don't know what I'm doing. He said, look, Bart, he said, the problem with you is you put it on the line. I put it between the lines. And, uh, and I felt like we were kindred spirits. And I think he felt the same way too until I broke. And we've talked a few times since then, but. But most recently, what happened was Philip wrote a memoir. It wasn't a book about his, his Christian thinking or philosophizing or his journalism. It was a book about his life. And he sent it to me with a, a note that said, I think your journey and my journey have a lot in common. And I remember reading it and thinking, gosh, I read the book and I was like, wow, our journeys have nothing in common. And I wrote to him and I said, I don't see any similarity between the two of us. Like you grew up in the most heinous form of Christianity. And you stuck with it and came up with a better form. And I grew up in the nicest form of Christianity and I walked away from it. But I think the thing he felt we had in common was, is that we struggled. And to some degree, the reason why I think Phil Yancey has been such a popular Christian writer is that he has, he has not shied away from the questions that most of us who leave the faith, these are the questions, you know, that drive us out. Where is God when it hurts? The problem of pain. 
disappointment with God. Does prayer work? <laughs> Which is not, not coincidentally are the titles of four of Phil's books. And he's wrestled with this stuff. And in fact, he's wrestled with it eloquently enough that he's been, a, I think, a huge force at keeping a lot of thoughtful Christians in Christianity. And when I read his book, I was like, after reading his life story, I'm like, it's not so much why do you stay in Christianity? It's like, why? Like, he got converted at the tail end of the most heinous Christian sort of spiritual abuse you could imagine while he was at a Bible college that was like practically throwing him out at that moment. And I'm like, not why did you stay? Why did you jump in in the first place? I wrote him a letter after I read the memoir and, and we ended up having this dialogue where I was asking about his conversion experience. And when it was done, he was like, you know what? He said, a lot of my readers don't know any, they don't know any secular people like you. They think of them as monsters or scary people that want to destroy you. And he said, here you are and I having this dialogue. He said, could I publish this? Could I post this on my website? And he did. And it got tons of responses from people. And I got tons of letters from people who are praying for my soul. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know, on, on this show, I spend a lot of time sort of encouraging people to be warmer and more understanding and sort of like trying to give people tools to navigate the difficult relationships they have with the believers in their lives, in their families, their spouses, their kids, whatever. And I thought, you know what? The conversation I have with Phil, that's me trying. That's me trying to do the same thing. It's trying to have a conversation with somebody who I know I can't convince. I'm not trying to change him. I'm just trying to understand him because he's my friend. And I want to be close to him and I want to, I want to see how it works inside of there. And I think when he's talking with me, he's not trying to win me over. He just wants to, he wants to know how it works to be me. And so I, I, I hope you like this conversation. I'll tell you, I'll tell you the truth is like, I really like this guy and I like talking with him. He is a really smart, really kind Christian. I, th I think it's like my friend Brian McLaren, who I go like, listen, he's making Christianity safer for the Christians and he's making the Christians safer for the rest of us. We should just, we should be grateful for him. And I am grateful for Philip Yancey and I'm grateful that he took the time to talk with me and I'm excited to share this conversation with you. So here's me and Philip Yancey chopping it up on Humanize Me. Yeah. I'm just so pleased to be talking with you. Yeah, we've never done this on, on air, have we? No, no. Yeah. Except for the blog post that you made. Like ours has been a completely private relationship, which is probably, you know, how most relationships should be. I remember when my dad got involved with President Clinton when uh -huh. he was, you know, in sort of counseling him and stuff. He got a call right after he was mentioned in the State of the Union. The president's uh, aide called him and said, Dr. Campola, um, you have a decision to make. Um, okay. You can either talk to the president or you can talk about the president, but you can't do both. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I thought to myself, you know, that's probably largely true of all of our relationships. Ah, in a different way. You're right. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Makes or sense. Maybe, maybe in that case, it's you can, and in most relationships, it's you should. <laughs> got it um but it. yeah well man I'm, I'm i'm glad to i'm glad to have you on my show if for no other reason than 
Yeah, I remember when you posted that blog post, and I, I got the impression reading some of the comments that a lot of the people in your audience don't have the opportunity to have just an open friend conversation with somebody who doesn't believe. Mm-hmm. There's always there's always some some freight there. I think you're right. I've been helped by the fact that I have a brother who went a very different direction than I did. And he actually goes to a humanist church. He calls it an atheist church, but it's the Sunday Assemblies, one of the, the groups that was founded, I think, by Alain de Botton, the uh, English-Swiss philosopher. And he said from the very beginning that he admires a lot of what churches do. They're good for single people, widows, uh, people who are recovering from grief, people who have special needs. But you don't have to believe in God to do that. So he started a church that imports many of the values that, that the church preaches, and they try to put them into motion, but without the theology behind it. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I've spoken at a number of Sunday mm. assemblies around, okay. the, around the country. And, and interesting enough, like Alain Dubouton did start something. He, his thing is called the School of Life. But it's not the same, huh? No. The, 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 okay. the, the Sunday assembly was started by actually two comedians. Oh, uh, all right. <laughs> but it's a similar kind of understanding that says, hey, you know, fellowship, getting together with people and pursuing goodness in an intentional way, like that mm. shouldn't be reserved for people right. that, um, that, exactly. that believe in a supernatural God. The first time I, the first time I went, Bart, uh, I was a little surprised that the quote, call to worship, the first song was Love Shack, <laughs> which kind of put, is not what I'm used to. But my brother had a very, he still has a very good friend, but the friend moved away, unfortunately, had a good friend who would go every other week to his church, and then Marshall would go every other week to one of the satellite churches of John Ortberg, who's a well-known evangelical pastor. Yeah. And I thought, isn't that great? The, the fact that they're sampling and being friends in the middle of it, even though they believe quite different things. Yeah. And I think you're right in the sense of it's a huge blessing in your life to have a brother who you love and who sort of went through the same upbringing that you went through. Right. In many ways. Right. Um, and, and who went such a different direction so that there's this sense of humanity on the other side of that faith divide for you, that mm -hmm. for a lot of people that are raised in the bubble, the people who are not believers always seem a little exotic and a little scary. Yeah. And what I have discovered since coming out of that world is that there are a tremendous number of people who are non-believers who don't have any relationship with a believer that isn't sort of freighted by the desire to change each other's minds or a kind of a distrust. And mm. so, you know, in, in the same way that probably many of the people that read your books don't know anyone like me, mm. many of the people that I encounter in the secular world don't know anyone like you. Not to mention the caricatures on Hollywood and, and television and all that. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, but you're absolutely right. I'm also a member of a book group. The only thing we have in common is that we all have a degree from the University of Chicago. So I'm sure I'm the only person who ever attends church in that group, although some of them were raised in a religious background. And as we read books together, it, it is interesting. I, I find that 
we have many values that are shared, not all, but we have many values that are shared. I think most of them would have a hard time articulating why they have those values. It may be kind of imported from the Christian consensus that used to prevail in the United States and is much less now. But we have much common ground. And you're right. The media sees evangelicals, particularly strictly through a political lens. They're those people who voted for Donald Trump. You know, that's about all the media knows about evangelicals. And um, most of my evangelical friends did not vote for Donald Trump. And I never see them represented in the media. It's, a, it's an odd division that we're in going through society. Well, yeah, you know, when you, when, it's interesting when you talk about the values that you and your friends in the book group have, because that's actually kind of one of the places I wanted to start with you, because I think the th you and I share many values. And in mm. fact, when you say, you know, you and your friends in the book group maybe don't share all the same values, I'd be really curious, like, what value do you think that you and I, like between us, like, what value do you think we don't share? I'm not speaking for you. I'll speak for no, the other no, no. Yeah, but, 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 people. Yeah, but we, for example, we read a, a novel by the only Arab who has won the Nobel Prize for Literature. It's an Egyptian novelist, and of course his name escapes me as I'm talking about it. But he wrote this trilogy based in Egypt, and it told of this very patriarchal male who had a family, and he told his wife that she could never leave the home because that was a strict Muslim value. She, she was never allowed out. But something happened. I think her son was graduating from high school or something, and she sneaked out, and she got caught. And he kind of imprisoned her in this room, never let her out. And when I read it, I was, I was horrified. We've got to change that. That's not right. <laughs> and others in the group said, well, this is just a different way. This is, a, you know, we need to be tolerant of other cultures and other values. And I said, well, there's some, there's some I can't, you know, widow burning in, in India. That's right, not, right. It's not a value that I can support. I don't care how cultural and, and, and uh, important it is in that society. So that was one that came out. And that's where you and I, like, I would be with you. Mm. And that's where I go, like, what's interesting to me about my connection with you is that your upbringing and my upbringing, as, as, I, as I discovered when I read where the light fell when you sent me that book and you said, you know, I think you and your, our journeys have a lot in common. And I ended up reading that book and going like, our journeys have nothing in common. <laughs> you know, your upbringing was in a strange part of Christianity. And there was a lot of hurt and a lot of suffering in that world that you were in. I grew up in kind of this idyllic kind of social justice and love kind of Christianity with my two parents who were married to each other and everybody was fine and there was plenty of food and you know and and so our upbringings were so different and and the, the ironic thing to me as i read the thing is is that we both have had this kind of struggle with orthodoxy with evangelical orthodoxy right and you've ended up sort of like in spite of all the craziness that you saw opting into christianity and in spite of all the warmth and goodness and social value I found in the church, ended up opting out of it, right. like not being able to hold that narrative. But I feel like our values have always been really, like I can't see any daylight between our values. 
Yeah, I can't think of any that where we would strongly disagree that I know of, Bart. I think one of the really interesting things for me is I go like, many of the people that I know, when they see somebody who is a non-believer or when they see somebody who's a believer, they look at them and go like, yeah, we don't have much in common. Mm. That person, our values aren't the same. And I look at you and I go like, your values and my values are so aligned. And that's in a sense what makes me go like, how can you not think like I think? <laughs> that's how I feel, Bart. <laughs> right, right. I mean, it's kind of a weird thing. We have really similar values, and yet we have really different worldviews. Right. And the weird thing is, is that I think that my worldview makes much more sense for somebody with your background than it does for somebody with mine. Hmm. Somebody like me should believe in God. You know, I was raised in a world in which, you know, if to the extent that, you know, you go like, well, God blesses those who are faithful, all the people around me were faithful. <laughs> they were all blessed. Like everything worked, you know, and you were raised in a place where like a lot of things didn't work for you as a kid growing up. You know, when I was reading your memoir, by the time you get to college and you are what you called a cynical renegade who relished being a cynical renegade from faith. Mm -hmm. I go like, that made total sense to me. I was like, how could you be anything but cynical about Christianity by the time you were, you made it to that crazy Bible college? Right. And as I say in the memoir, I did go through a period of softening, softening the edges of the cynicism and the where the light fell, as you know, refers to the, the things that convinced me that that harsh, judgmental, hell-ridden <laughs> scowling God uh, background that I came out of was, was not reality. Instead, I found through the beauties of nature and classical music and romantic love, those three things were where the light fell on me. And, and gradually, I realized that that little tiny church that preached hellfire and brimstone every Sunday had misrepresented God. If there was a God, he was not like it was described in my church on Sunday morning. It was a God that lavished the earth with beauty. Everywhere I go, I live in Colorado, everywhere I go, there's beauty, 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 whether anybody notices it or not. And I didn't climb back <laughs> to God on my own. I was kind of uh, blindsided by God. I talk about a conversion experience in there, and I've been writing books for a long time. I've never really described it like that, because if you haven't had a conversion experience, it probably seems very strange, or or you feel, maybe I need one like Philip. Well, you don't need one like Philip. God encounters people in very different ways. Mine happened to be a dramatic one, one that I, I don't think I engineered on my own. It's the last thing I wanted to happen to me at the time, but it happened to me. And it, it changed everything from that moment forward. And now when I look back, Bart, it's more a, okay, there's a big question, is there a God or not? Well, a lot of smart people believe there is not a God. And so they explain the universe and humanity and all that we're aware of in different ways. But I, I think that takes quite a bit of faith. When you look at all the constants that would be required just to produce this planet Earth, much less life, much less all the species on Earth, you know, I kind of go with, it seems more logical to me that there was somebody behind it, that there was a designer who at least set the DNA in motion from the very beginning. And if there is a God, that I presume that God wants to, at some point, relate to these creatures who can at least talk about God and Christians believe were created in God's image. Okay, so how would he do that? How would that God do that? Christianity says, well, he, he did it by sending 
strange prophet named Jesus to show us what God is like, which surprised everybody, took them aback. He wasn't at all like they thought God would be. And to show us what we should be like, to show us what God is like and what we should be like. When I look at, at other religions, when I look at other ways to account for the universe, it's just one that makes that makes sense to me. That's not really why I believe. It wasn't in a in a logical progression stage. It was Yeah, you didn't you didn't check out every religion and choose this one as the supreme. No, not at all. I mean you grew I, up I was, in it. Yeah, I was just recovering from the toxic side of that religion, <laughs> no doubt. And when I found the healthy side, then as a journalist, I spent most of my life hanging around people that I really want to be, learn from and be like. So yeah. I, I've been spent a lot of my time encountering people who share the same values you and I share and have been transformed. Unlike the prosperity people, I've spent a lot of my writing career among the non-prosperity people, among the suffering, among people with leprosy in, in India. You know, that's about as low as you can get. There's nobody lower on the social scale. And I've seen them truly transformed being treated like dirt all of their lives or in the black churches in, in the South, you know, why in the world did they embrace Christianity when they had been beaten over the head by it or beaten on their backs by it, by these slave owners who would rape them and break apart their, their families. And yet somehow in identifying with that crucified God, the God who became one of us and took on pain, they found something to trust, something to believe. I mean, that is an interesting question. Like, why would somebody who had suffered at the hands of a faith then embrace the faith, you know, <laughs> unless it's Stockholm Syndrome? And that's, I guess, the question I had, you know, when I read your memoir, that was the thing that drove me to like reach out to, uh, mm. again and say like, okay, I get some of this, but the thing I don't get is your conversion experience. You know, I had a conversion experience mm, and I've been right. around a lot of them. And one of the things about conversion experiences is that in most cases, the person has to have some frame of reference or some openness to that happening. You know, there's a sense in which there's, there's a place for God to intervene. Like you were at a Bible study when it happened. Right. You weren't just like out in the wilderness. And in the Bible, Paul was persecuting Christians when it happened. He had Christianity on his mind. You had Christianity on your mind when it happened. And so the thing that I guess I wonder is, you know, your experience growing up, you know, my listeners won't know the whole story about your father's death and your mom's sort of offering her two sons up to God to replace him in ministry and sort of, you know, christening you and sort of sending, saying, this is what you've got to be and all the weird mind games that you experienced in the church. But I guess, you know, my question is like, when you encountered natural beauty, when you encountered classical music, which is kind of like human-made beauty, and when you encountered romantic love, when you encountered those things, the light, as you call it, why did you ascribe it? Like, why was it your first instinct to ascribe it to this narrative or this God who you had seen so much weirdness around? And so much pain around. Like, do you know why when the light fell, you didn't ascribe it to nature or to kind of humanity? Why do you think you were so prone to, as they say, give God the glory? I don't think I was thinking of, 
about that systematically at the time. I was just encountering things that were new to me that attracted me. There's a there's a saying that's attributed to G.K. Chesterton. I think he actually stole it from somebody else who said the worst moment for an atheist is when he feels a profound sense of gratitude and has no one to thank. And I, I think that's how that's how I felt. I was raised in pain and suffering and some would say abuse and without love, really, without yeah, a, yeah. a healthy love. And when I experienced love, I thought, this is great. I think this is at the heart of the universe, not that frown, not that fearsomeness that I was brought up with. When I experienced the beauties of nature, the design, uh, 500,000 species of beetles, you know, 200,000 yeah. kinds of butterflies, uh, works of art. And when I see a work of art, I want to know something about the artist. And, and I felt whoever God is, God is not that killjoy that I was raised. Anything fun, stamp it out, stamp it out. I wanted to get to know that God. I had a feeling of, of gratitude. Thank you for this world. And I wanted to thank someone for this world. Thank you for the good things that were showering on me in the midst of a still very repressive environment at the Bible College. That's so interesting to me and profound because like, when you're on the outside of the faith and you're around all these people that are pursuing kind of goodness in a secular way. Um, mm -hmm. One of the things that they often arrive to is, you know, if I'm really committed to making the most of my life and I want to build loving relationships, they end up sort of going like, have you tried psychedelic drugs? Like it seems <laughs> like, a, it seems like meditation, but then the drugs seem like a shortcut to that same kind of enlightenment. And mm. so I'm around a lot of people that describe to me the psychedelic trips and I've had them myself. And it's that same experience of they see the beauty of nature or they see things in a different light. And what's interesting is, is that those people, they feel grateful and they end up just feeling grateful to existence, grateful right. that they grateful that, that they're part of the great chain of nature, you know, in that Bible study at that Bible college, experiencing all this love and all this beauty. You're like, you went for a person, you know, a person named God. In some sense, I think it really makes sense to me that you would do that because you had been hearing about that person named God in such vivid terms your whole life. So you're like, maybe they got him wrong, but the idea that there's somebody out there that was just in your bones, there's somebody out there. I think the reason why I'm interested in this so much, Philip, is because a lot of people, when they look at an intelligent, articulate believer like you, and, and this is like something you, you may have experienced, is that there are a lot of non-believers who genuinely think that every intelligent Christian that they're talking to is lying to them. Hmm. They think you don't, re you can't really believe this. You can't. It's too irrational. Like it's too far out. The idea that like you just happen to be born into the one true religion, like it's too far-fetched. And they, they really believe that people aren't telling them the truth. But like, I know better because I was there. Like when I listen to you, I'm aware of that. But that's why I wanted my audience to hear us talk because I think that a lot of times they think that the not so educated or the not so bright ones are dupes and the educated and the bright ones are liars. 
not mean liars, not conniving liars, but they think like they don't really believe it in their heart of hearts. And when I hear you, my sense is that when you saw the beauty of nature and you heard the beauty of the music and you fell in love with that beautiful woman, that it was the most natural thing in the world for you to ascribe that to and say, well, this is proof to me that there is a God and this is, this is, and this is his handiwork. I don't know, Bart. Um, I think history is actually on my side. You know, there are thousands of different cultures and everyone that I've seen studied does have a, a strong religion that believes in higher powers of some sort. So yeah, it's the most natural thing in the world. Yeah. So many scientists would say we're kind of hardwired to have a religious instinct. And, I would say uh, that. Yeah. So it's really only since, um, you know, the last several hundred years in history that exceptions have come up to that. And it's part of the modern West, the secularized West. And I understand where all that came from. I was a part of that at, at one time. When I travel overseas, we spend a lot of time overseas. When I travel trying to see what motivates other people in other religions or other expressions of, of what I believe, they're in the majority by by a long shot. They're, oh, we're, yeah. we're the we're, you know, it's the modern ones. I don't know if you've read Charles Taylor's The Secular Age, but uh, we're the anomaly. <laughs> you know, your cynical secularists would say, yeah, and, you know, 300 years ago or 500 years ago, you were in the anomaly if you thought the earth was round. They're like, the fact that most people believe something doesn't necessarily isn't an argument for it. Oh, sure. But what I, you know, it's funny. I just got a, I just got a note from one of my listeners who was furious because he had read Brian McLaren's new book. Hmm. Uh, which is called Why Stay a Christian. Mm -hmm. And he said, I read the whole book and he never mentioned you. He never, like, he never had a conversation with you as he was wrestling with that question. And I picked up a review of the book and I thought like, yeah, you know, Brian's not writing to people who are questioning their belief in God's existence. People like me. Right. He's questioning people who believe in God and are dismayed with the church. Right. And I said to my friend, hey, you shouldn't be angry at Brian. You should be thanking him. Because the truth is, is if every human brain were wiped clean of supernaturalism this afternoon, if nobody believed in God this afternoon, by tomorrow morning, you know, faith would have reappeared and they would believe in some kind of God again. Like It's a wonder of science that anybody doesn't believe in God, that anybody's a materialist. Like That's the strange thing. Hmm let alone somebody that becomes what Ursula Goodenough would call a religious naturalist, somebody who, who looks at the material world and goes like, this is worthy of my devotion. You're on the side of, of the vast majority. And that's why like, I think like, I didn't mean it as a criticism when I said it was natural for you to ascribe the beauty that you saw to God. It seems to me that that's, that that's what we're both saying is like, yeah, that's that's how most of us are wired. That's the default mode for human beings is to look for someone to thank. There was something else at work that, that's occurring to me just as we talk, Bart. And the one thing I took away from the intensity of the fundamentalist church I grew up in was that our choices matter, that what we do matters. And now we were being dangled over hellfire you know, every, <laughs> every Sunday morning. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you wear a shirt, this skirt is too short, you know. You're yeah, it could be all over. 
And we know how the church has used that, misused that over the years. Thank goodness there was no internet porn back then, or else, no, you know, no kidding. we'd have all been destroyed. That's right. But that sense that when I face a choice of, say, being kind to a disabled person, for example, or making fun of them, that's, that's not just an arbitrary choice. There's something fundamental about that. The choices we make in this life somehow have a ramification in what may be an afterlife. And of course, different religions spell that out. Christianity spells that out. Even if there was no afterlife, that that deep sense that my choices matter almost eternally. They're not just arbitrary things. I was I was inbred with that. But of course you could be the most cynical scientific materialist and you go like do your choices matter i guess i guess the one question the person would ask is are they really choices yeah right but you know that's one one school of thought but but i think the question is does what i do matter and in some sense even if you wanted to to carry it out does it have eternal consequences Mm -hmm. i i don't think any physicist would argue that everything has everything touches everything else that everything Mm -hmm. So like, you know, like that's not an argument for or against faith that my choices have consequences. That's just an observation. Okay. But I think that's the other thing that's really interesting is, is that even as the idea of God is hardwired into most of us, the hope of life beyond this one, I think that's really fundamental to being a human being. Whether you believe in eternal life is real or not, whether you think it's true, I, I think anyone that's ever loved anybody knows what it's like to hope for it. And if somebody you love dies, how could you not hope that you'll somehow, some way, you'll get to be reconnected with that person? You're right. And that is instinctive, even in our culture. I, I notice after a tragedy, like right now, we're talking just after this huge fire in Hawaii where almost 100 people died, maybe more. And a town was destroyed. And after 9-11, after those kind of events, even the New York Times, <laughs> who do they call on to comment? They call on priests, pastors, and rabbis. And they let them talk openly about heaven <laughs> because people are hungry for it. They, they want to believe. It's it's almost yeah. instinctive. And if, I've spoken in some of these places like Newtown, Connecticut, after the Sandy Hook killings in the school there before a thousand people a couple nights in a row, including parents of of the children who who were murdered. And yeah. boy, the one word they want to hear above all is this is not the end. You will see your child again. And Christianity does have its own version of that promise for sure. Other other religions do as well. But they really cling to that. That's what keeps them going. I, I mean, it's funny, like, because my my sort of hero is this 19th century um, orator named Robert G. Ingersoll, who is largely forgotten at the time of his death, had spoken to more live human beings than any human being on the in the history of the of humanity. He was this wildly popular orator who was, you know, a, a, a popularizer of Darwin, and he preached these very winsome, funny, warm, humorous sermons against Christianity. And he was, you know, sort of famous for doing eulogies. And he said, like, yeah, like, you don't need a religion to invent the hope of heaven. 
Like that's just love, touch, and grief. Like it's just basic. The thing that I think separates you from your run-of-the-mill evangelical author or your run-of-the-mill evangelical period is that you spent a lot of time meditating on the problems of faith, right. the difficulties of a God who doesn't seem to show up on cue when you would expect. The very realities that, that ultimately caused me to think, that I don't think there's anyone out there. Hmm. You haven't run from those realities. You've, spent, you've, you've, you've been up to your ears in them. And your faith has kind of survived them, been shaped by them. I mean, that's kind of what's interesting to me. It's like, there's no arguments against God that you haven't heard or wrestled with. Are there? Do, I mean, do you think there's anything you haven't thought about? I'd go even further. I, I can't think of an argument against God that's not already in the Bible. <laughs> you know, Job, Lamentations, many of the Psalms, Jeremiah. And yeah, no, when, when my dad asked me which book it was that undermined my faith, he said, what was the book that really took you out? Was it Dawkins, Hitchens, or Harris? I said, oh, no, it's the Bible. It's the Bible, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. the one. Right. And I, I have respect for God who not only gives us the freedom to shake our fist and, and call them names and crucify a son or whatever, but also gives us the words that we can use in disbelieving <laughs> because there, there are a bunch of them in the Bible. Go back and read Job or the Psalms. About half of the Psalms are, are not the kind you'd want to read to somebody in a hospital bed. They're the, they're the people crying out to God, how long, how long must we put up with this injustice? Yeah. So, you know, you've been through those wars, you know, on some level you're in one right now, right? Like you get Parkinson's disease. Mm. I guess it's no news to you. Like, it's not like you haven't suffered before or seen suffering, mm -hmm. but it, it's, it's a weird one. It is a weird one. Frankly, I haven't had a second of why me. Um, right. You know, there are a lot of, why, why do people get COVID? <laughs> it's, 99% of viruses are good things. Only 1% are destructive. 85% of bacteria are good things. Only 15% can be destructive. We live in a world where there are a lot of choices <laughs> that a creator or evolution or whatever made. And some are good, a lot of good, and, and some are bad. And Parkinson's is, uh, so far, it's something I can cope with well. May not always happen. I, I, met people, I can sit in the lobby and see that, that could be me five years from now, one year from now, and see these people who are, who are very disabled. Uh, but at my age, I've, I've had a wonderful life, 73 years. I haven't spent a moment crying out to God uh, on that. It's just, uh, okay, now that it happened. My wife, Janet, I think you've met her, came up with a good definition of health. She said, health is the ability to adapt to life as it happens. And I like that, the ability to adapt to life as it happens. And in my case, it happens including Parkinson's. So how do I adapt to it? How, how do we adapt to it? We can, I can either spend my time denying it or fighting against it or, or trying to adapt to it. Yeah. The new realities that I face. You do understand, though, that like that 85% of viruses or 99% of viruses and 80, like sort of saying like it's mostly good but there's some really evil, destructive stuff going on out there. That's easier to lay at the feet of an uncaring universe 
And they go like, the universe is mostly beautiful and partly terrifyingly ugly, but it doesn't care. Like it's not, it's not doing it on purpose. It's just literally, it is what it is. When you say like the creator made 85% good bacteria and 50, like, you know, and, and you just happen to get the bad bacteria, or you just happen to get the bad virus. That's a lot harder for somebody outside of the faith to stomach, like how a good God works that way. Sure. Sure. At, at the same time, I turned that a little different direction. There's a great quote from Richard Dawkins that I, I won't be able to come up with right away, but he said that life is exactly what we should expect from a universe that is judged as, as completely random, and we're an occasional blip in the process. And I happened to be doing an article on New Atheists before I w was called to speak at Newtown, Connecticut, and I thought, we don't act like that's true. Even the New York Times, they ran 3,000 obituaries. Every single person who died got an obituary with a summary of their life in the New York Times, as if they mattered. Dawkins basically said, they don't matter. We're just a little blip, never to be repeated, just an accident. And we, d we don't treat people as if they are just a little accident that happened. Yeah. It's interesting because like, and this is a place where, you know, where I would say, I, I can't, it's funny, you would very seldom find me like defending Richard Dawkins' um, humanity or, or his warmth. Mm -hmm. But I'd say like, it's one thing to say that human beings don't matter to the universe, which I think is true. It's another thing to say that they don't matter to each other. And so like mattering only happens between sentient beings. Like there has to be somebody to matter to. And so in a sense, I think, Everybody that, like, even if there is no God, you matter to Janet. You matter to me. You matter to a lot of people. And so the fact that I have no ultimate significance, you know, that someday everyone that I matter to will be gone and I will matter to nobody, <laughs> you know, except like something I may have written that somebody finds, but like, but, and someday the sun will explode and there will be no record of me left in the universe. I go like, yeah, 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 that's okay. I matter to you right now. I matter to my kids and my grandkids right now. And I guess that's enough significance for me. And I don't know if that makes sense to you, but sometimes I feel like when people are vying for eternal life and eternal significance, I sort of go like, it seems unseemly to me, almost like people that have won the lottery and they won $10 million demanding a billion dollars. And I'm like, you know, 10 million is a lot of money. You should just, maybe you should just be grateful for that. Um, and I go like 70 years, 80 years of consciousness, you know, based on what I can see in the rest of the universe, you're pretty lucky if you get 70 years of consciousness. And then if you have somebody that you love, I go like, this is a big deal. Like you've won the lot. Dawkins again, Dawkins would say you've won the cosmic lottery out of all the matter and energy in the universe. You've got, you've achieved consciousness. You've won the ultimate prize. Enjoy it. And sometimes I feel like religions are often sort of saying like, but there's more. This isn't even the heart of it. This is just a foretaste. There's something, and I, I, you know, sometimes that's my fear is that people get so excited about the more that they fail to savor what is, what's right here. The thrill of mattering to another person. Yes. And I, I identify with what you're saying. I frankly. Probably shouldn't say this on on a podcast, but I frankly I, I 
I don't spend any time thinking about the next life. I, I'm living in this life. However, at the same time, I'm aware that when I'm talking to parents in Newtown, Connecticut, and one day kissed their children goodbye, the seven-year-old, the six-year-old, and then that same day went back and identified their bloody body in a morgue, it does matter to see that child again. And to, to the millions of slaves who lived in injustice and repression and torture in some cases in the New World, more in South America than North America, but in the New World, it matters a belief that it's going to turn around one day. <laughs> you know, there's going to be an ultimate justice. They're going to have something better. You go back and, and read or listen to those, uh, what used to be called Negro spirituals, the, the great spirituals that came out of slavery, especially. They're profound, and it, it's what kept people going. And if there isn't some sort of afterlife, but there is a God, I would have a hard time with that God. You know, I think I think God owes us an afterlife to correct some of the things that happen in this life. And I sort of understand that, like, one of the reasons people believe in God is because they desperately want to believe in an afterlife. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons that people believe in an afterlife is because they believe in God. So, like, those, you're sort of like, these two things have to go together. What I hear you saying is, like, the one doesn't work without the other. Yes. A good and loving God doesn't work that's without right. an afterlife that's where there's some justice and, and healing. And justice and healing in the afterlife doesn't work if there's not a God to provide it. That's right. And, and Jesus was pretty clear about that uh, because he talked a lot about the next life. He didn't try to defend the negative things as, in this life. He, he tried to heal them, you know, when he came across them, but that, not in any cosmic sense, just kind of one person at a time that he ran into. And the Apostle Paul, the same thing. You know, yeah. He said, uh, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then we're just wasting our time. We're, we're the most pitiful people on earth, you know, to wait for something to happen that's not happening now. So you're absolutely right. And I mean, I don't believe in either the God or the eternal life he promises. But when I encounter Christians who preach that, I never want to shut them down. Like, I, like those people don't upset or make me angry. It's not the doctrine of heaven that I have a problem with, as you might expect. It's the doctrine of hell. Mm -hmm. It's the notion of eternal suffering and punishment that makes no sense to me. Why would anyone want to attack Christianity or tear it down? And I always say, oh, like just the doctrine of original sin and hell. You take those out of the equation and I'll leave it alone. And, and I wonder, like, you know, when you're at Sandy Hook, you can see where heaven comes from. Mm -hmm. And you can see where the need for a good and loving God comes from in the human experience. Where do you think the need for hell and eternal suffering, where, where do you think those things come from? Well, if you're in Auschwitz, maybe you think of where hell came from. A writing of the wrongs of, of the scales of justice. I mean, that's, Martin Luther King was, was very clear about that, you know, believing that there would be an ultimate justice. Now, a lot of different Christians have different interpretations of what hell is going to be like. I don't know if along the way you ever read The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. Oh, of course, yeah. That's the only one that makes any sense to me, frankly. The temporary hell, where you work out your stuff. Even more, a hell is a continuing and ongoing choice. Like, yeah, and a hell of your own choosing, yeah. You know, Napoleon walking around, pacing the floor because he's at last in charge, but only of himself, you know? Yeah. 
to the extent that I know you don't spend much time thinking about heaven or hell, you're living in this world, but like to the extent that you do think about justice or, or hell, do you think that like C.S. Lewis had it right? Like that's actually how it works. Do you think it's real? I have no idea. I have no idea. I do believe that we're kind of owed an afterlife. The injustice of, of history for me as a Christian kind of demands an afterlife that addresses those injustices. But how that works out, the images that we get in the Bible are images that were important to people who lived in towns that are like castles and streets of gold and all that, but they, they really don't mean anything to me. So I, I don't know how those are just the metaphors that are expressing some sort of reality, but it's not a reality that speaks to me. I mean, I think that one of the things that I hear you saying is we're owed this. Like it needs to be this, like those Sandy Hook parents, they need to believe this. I always find myself wondering when I hear that is does the fact that something needs to be true or ought to be true. Do you think that's an argument that it actually is true? Like I can hear you saying like, what are you supposed to say to all these people who've lost their children? You say that this is true because that's what they need. And I go like, I know that's what they need. Are there any things that happen in the world that are terrible that are wrong and you can't unwrong them? Like that was bad. That shouldn't have happened. There's no fixing it. And I guess what I'm wondering is like, do you think that it's an argument for the truth of God that we need God? Is it an argument for the truth of heaven that we need heaven? I don't think it's an argument. I think it's a clue. It's a, an instinct. And, you know, as a Christian, my faith centers around Jesus. So I keep going back to Jesus. And, and Jesus did talk very freely about heaven. And he talked very freely about comfort for parents who lost their children. When, whenever he was confronted with someone who had one of those 1% viruses or 15% bacteria, what did he do? He got rid of it. You know, he, he overcame it according to the gospel records. So again, I take my version of what God is like primarily from Jesus, which is very different than the version I grew up with in that fundamentalist church, and quite different from most of what you get in the Old Testament, admittedly. Yeah. So uh, Jesus was a person who, who never said, just get used to it. You lost your kid. That's too bad. He had a message of hope, a message of triumph and hope for them. And he never said, I don't care about your suffering. He always cared about your suffering, and he always did something about it. I learned from that that despite what it looks, God is on the side of the one who suffers. That when people came to Jesus and used the old arguments, well, God must have made this man blind for something he did in utero. Think about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly how can you sin in utero before you're born? Jesus always contradicted that, whether the Pharisees or the his own disciples confronted him with that. He had a whole different way of looking at what happens in the world. He was always on the side of the one who was hurting. So that's an important clue to me to what God is like. And it's these, these are just clues. They're not yeah. airtight, obviously. Now, and yeah, it's, it's so funny. Even when I was in the church, the new author would come through town and he would tell you like, Jesus was the world's greatest salesman or Jesus was yeah. a feminist or Jesus was. And I remember realizing pretty early in the game that when somebody would tell me about that, I would always say like, tell me about Jesus. Mm. And when somebody would tell me about Jesus, 
it didn't tell me anything about who Jesus was, mm. but it told me everything about who that person was and what they valued. And so when I hear you talk about a Jesus who cares about the suffering and who offers hope and who never passes by somebody who's hurting without trying to touch them, I could underline different verses of scripture and come up with a different version of Jesus. And I go, like, I, I don't want to argue with it. But I go like, the fact that that's the Jesus you believe in, I don't know what Jesus was like. I got four different accounts and they don't even all line up with each other. But I, I'll tell you what, the Jesus you believe in tells me a lot about why I like you. <laughs> you know, one of the things that you did, and maybe the, I, I know your time is, you know, you, we're coming up on, on the hour that you got for me and, and I, I want to respect that. But, but one of the things, when you published our dialogue about your memoir, one of the things you said was, I, I think this would be a good thing for my people to see. Like, I think it's good for them to see a loving dialogue between friends right. who believe differently. And I, I wonder, you know, I, I guess in the same spirit, I'm, I'm like, what do you think? The climate is so bad right now for people who disagree about politics, let alone theology. What do you think? You're a good communicator. What do you think we could do to foster better communication and better more warmth and more love across that faith divide. What have you seen? What have you done? What do you think we should do? Like, I'm, I'm just curious, like, what do you think for the Christians, e even within families that are going to struggle at Thanksgiving this year? What, what, what do you think? You got anything? I think what we're doing is so important, Bart, and that is not entering in a conversation with the idea that my, my goal is to change your mind on something. But rather, my goal is to understand you mm. and listen to you. Yeah. And, and you with me. And I think we are able to do that. And I, I read these stats that one out of six people in the United States have broken a relationship with a family member because of a division over politics. And that is so sad. You know, that's so temporary and transitory. The relationships are far more important. And we need. We, we need to learn how to sit down with people who see the world differently, get out of our own country even, and, and see the entire cosmos differently. But it, it's a start. The relationships are more important. You know, as I listen to you, I think, like, it wouldn't really have done for us as friends if we had decided, okay, so now we won't talk about faith because you know, cause that's not a place where we agree. So let, let's right. just, we'll just agree to disagree and leave that one alone. I go like, what the hell would there be to talk to you about? Like faith has shaped both of our lives exactly. and continues to shape our lives. And like, for me, the pursuit of loving kindness on the outside of it, like we don't just talk about faith. You talk about love, you talk about community, you talk about, and I go like, if we took away that stuff, we wouldn't have a relationship. Mm-hmm. And so it's not enough to say, let's not talk about those things. Let's talk about the, the cubs. <laughs> um, we've got to find a way to, as you say, to listen for understanding rather than to listen for a weakness that you can exploit to win the argument. And, and you're modeling that, Bart. I listened to your program with Dr. Lurman at, at Stanford. I listened to your program with the, the singer, I don't remember his name, who kind of Oh, yeah, sweet guy from War. American Idol, yeah. Yeah, right, right. Those are great. And uh, I've had similar experiences with my friend Mel White, who is one of the persons active in, in gender wars. And 
just seen the way he goes around and treats people and is treated by people and yet finds a way to love back and to try to increase understanding. And that's why we're here. That's what yeah. we've got to find a way to get along. This would be kind of a pithy ending. I, I hadn't really thought of this, but I, I'm just looking at the book cover right now. And I was like, you and I are going to always disagree about where the light came from, but I'm, I'm certainly glad that it fell on you. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Great. I'm certainly great glad that it fell on you. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, thanks, thanks for talking today. I really, I really appreciate it. I'll let you know when this thing gets posted and all that stuff. I actually think it was a pretty good conversation. Great. I'm really and, pleased. And we all, we just get little slivers of light, any of us. Nobody can look at the sun directly, can experience it. But we get those little slivers and then uh, you follow them one direction, I follow them another direction. Yeah. As I say to all, you know, it's funny, I was thinking same thing with Brian. Like Brian makes Christianity safer for believers hmm. and he makes those believers safer for the rest of us. And I feel like that's what you've done all your career is you've made Christians safer for the rest of us and you've made Christianity a little bit more hospitable for the people that are in it. And so this is kind of my sign off. My dad used to end every conversation or any, he'd always say, Hey, keep the faith, baby. And, uh, I, I don't say it to everybody because some people I'm like, yeah, you'd probably be better off without it. But, uh, the nicest thing I can say to anyone who believes is keep the faith and so uh, keep, keep the faith, Phil. I'll do my best part. <laughs> All right, bud. I'll talk okay. to you soon. So long. Bye-bye. All right. So that's me and Philip Yancey having what felt to me like a totally worthwhile conversation. And I hope you felt the same way. And whenever I have a conversation that seems totally worthwhile, I sort of go like, wow, I'm grateful for that. And then I go like, wait, what is it that enabled me to set aside the time and to get John to set up the phone call and to have the microphones that we could do? And I go like, oh, I know what it was. It was the people that support the show. So since I'm grateful, <laughs> Philip said, you know, he quoted G.K. Chesterton, the most terrible thing that can happen is to be overwhelmed with a feeling of gratitude, I have no one to thank. I always thought like, that's never really been a problem for me. Like, I, you know, I thank my lucky stars. I thank, you know, I think, I, I thank the universe. Uh, in this case though, I actually want to thank Stephen Tuscan and Travis Litherland, John Gardner, David Thompson, Dave Anfinson, Scott Reiner, Jeff Emmerich. And you might say, those are all guys. Like, are you only thankful to guys? I'm going, no, there are a lot more guys who support this show. I just got to be honest, but it is not just guys because I also want to thank Cheesy. And you say, how do you know that Cheesy, because that's the only name this person gives as they support the show. How do you know that Cheesy is a woman? And I go like, I don't, but it could go either way. And since I really want to feel like we have a strong feminine contingent of supporters, I'm, I'm, I'm claiming Cheesy. So cheesy, if, if I've got you wrong, you know how to find me, but uh, I'm grateful for you either way. I'm also grateful to Joelle Van Galen, and I'm saying Galen because she spells her name, the last part of her name with G-A-A-L-E-N. So I, like, I think that's the right thing. Joelle, I'll just say Joelle. Thanks, Joelle. And the last and certainly not least woman that I want to thank is Lisa Goodhart who honestly, until the moment when John sent me the name of supporters, 
I didn't realize was one of our podcast kind of super supporters. And you say like, why, why would you have noticed early? And I go like, cause that's my sister. That's my sister. My sister supports this podcast. And, you know, I'm just so pleased by that and proud of that and happy about that. It just makes my day. So Lisa, thanks. I mean, just thanks. Thanks to all of you. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Phil Yancey for coming on and talking. Thanks for John for recording it. Like, there's a lot of people to thank. And if you know the the ways of evolutionary anthropology and, and astrophysics, like, thank my lucky stars. Thank the process. Like, just general thanks are going out there, right? Yeah, general thanks are going out there. And they'll be going out there again the next time we're together on Humanize Me. This podcast is made possible by supporters of the show on Patreon. Get an exclusive extra episode every month for less than the cost of a cup of coffee at patreon.com slash humanize me. You'll also get a video newsletter from Bart and some extra goodies. Our patrons make this show happen. So please, if you enjoy it, consider joining us. That's patreon.com slash humanize me. Bart's website where you can contact him is bartcampolo.org. And this episode is produced by Katie Johnson-Smith, me, John Wright, and Bart Campolo. Hey, you could be larger than life, bigger than the world, living out the hopes and dreams of every boy and every girl. Hey, you could fly higher than the sky, shine brighter than the stars. You can live for you ever wanted. Cool.